Mr. And we're back. I am Murphy. I think Tom is still Tom. Are you out there, dude? I thought I thought you were going to intro with your uh, movie trailer voice. <laughs> I don't even... Welcome to the Chopping Wood Inside podcast. Like you that? do it so much better when you're not on the spot. Welcome when we're talking on the, yeah. the phone... You, you put you me completely it. on the spot. I wasn't ready for I'm that, so... Yeah. I'm sorry, yes. Well, we're here to talk about uh, Part 13. This is a season rewind episode, or series rewind. Uh, any thoughts to, before we jump on into this one? This is a good episode, I, right? Is it? I think this is... Yeah, so this is the beginning of the last third. So we've gone through two-thirds. So we don't really have any more transitional episodes. This one is... It's got a little bit of a transition feel to it. The first half takes place primarily outside of Twin Peaks. I don't think there's any scenes in Twin Peaks oh. until maybe about the 30 minute point, but then it, it pretty much stays in a Twin Peaks. And then after this episode, we're just, we, you know, with a foot on the gas pedal to, to the end, or at least till 18, where it, you know, we go up in you know, crazy uh, Lynch uh, vertigo land, which I love. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is a really good, I mean, they're all great, but uh, as an aside, does it feel like it's been an extremely long time since we've done one of these things? Well, it, it has. I mean, not really to me because we had the holidays in between. But yeah, it's been like uh, four or five weeks a month. It's a little like an extra week, right? Than, than normal. Yeah. You do one a month. Yeah. 
Yeah, we did the blue velvet one last time, and I'm remiss. I actually forgot we were doing this podcast. I thought I was going to move on to something else. <laughs> I, I have to give you the prompt like a week beforehand. Yeah. Murphy. I'm like, week? oh. Yeah. Today, Saturday, uh, this week, together. you just did it like yesterday, a couple days ago. You're like, hey, remember, podcast time. You didn't give me much time to prepare. So Real quick, the, the blue velvet one we did, it was great to do something a little bit differently, but we really only covered about 30 minutes of Blue Velvet and then we went into all the connections <laughs> with every. We did not mention Dean Stockwell one time. I love that I think I did mention piece. that uh, Lynch could have been a good Dean Stockwell character. I think he was brought up at least once. You did mention something, about, but yeah. he, he was not name dropped. And the whole, that, when I was watched that as a kid, when I was like 14 uh, years old when I saw that film, the whole movie was mind blowing. But that set piece with his character, Ben, and, and the rapport with Frank, and one suave fuck, and that whole thing with the, uh, uh, Brad Dourif with the snake, and Dorothy coming out after seeing her kid all withdrawn and depressed. It just that, to me, really cemented. That is my like favorite like scene from that film. And there's usually something akin to that little set piece in other Lynch films. Like, I think of, like, for Firewalk With Me, the scene in the pink room, the scene where Laura and Donna and the truckers show up and meet Jacques, and then eventually Renette shows up, uh, really evokes Blue Velvet, that set piece that's in one location. The cinematography, the sound design, the characters having to speak over the music. That's probably my favorite scene in Firewalk With Me. It's the epitome of Lynch at his peak form, which is perfect. And uh, there's the scene in uh, Inland Empire where you probably don't remember since you've only seen it the one time, and I think you were altered. They do the locomotion of <laughs> those prostitutes. Yeah. One major set piece that really is very extraordinary, uh, vivid, different. We, I just couldn't believe we didn't talk about that, so I just I wanted to mention that. It's a crazy clown started. time. You ever seen the video to that? It's kind of similar. <laughs> You know what? I have to admit, when I saw that video, that was during like the dark ages where I think it was after Inland Empire and like there wasn't anything percolating for Lynch. And now he's into music and here's a music video. I watched that video. I'm not really into You're upset. I music. That. Yeah, you're mad. I was, I didn't. You said it's I, over. I felt like. I th- <laughs> you sold out. I did. Yeah. No, I don't think I said sell out. I just felt that it felt like a parody of Lynch, like someone doing Lynch. And it was actually Lynch doing it. It just. I wasn't a big fan of Crazy Clown Time or the song, but thank God we got the return. So, but I do love his On music, note, and you aren't really. Well, I think you are getting into his music a little bit, right? So, a little bit. I liked his last to. album. There's a couple of songs that yeah, I really I dig, that. but uh, I like when he does his soundscapes. All right. Well, on that note, we're queued up right after the Rancho Rosa logo. Are you ready to go, Tom? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Hit play, everybody. If you're going to follow along, here we are again, Tom. Here's the orb. The Laura Orb. Do you want to talk about that? You've got some theories about the Laura Orb. We've been talking about the Laura Orb this week. <laughs> it's, just a, it's not a theory. <laughs> it's not a theory. I was just trying to cheer you up. Oh, I know, but this doesn't mean anything. I just thought that there Tom, might what, be... Tom, what, Tom, Tom, what, what are the Golden Orbs? And do you think about uh, Laura Palmer, you know, being in Part 8, an orb? Like, is she... Uh, we see one in part two, episode one, when uh, the giant puts a golden orb into Cooper when he's laying in the Great Northern Bed about to dream. Is somehow are the golden orbs all stemming from uh, the original orb, which was Laura, um, which might be a metaphor, but it's probably not really her with the homecoming uh, photo in it. But it's got to be a metaphor for like a Joan of Arc type good who's been sent down by heaven or God figure that you know to go and try to like you know help. Uh, fix the Judy problem in, in the world. It's almost like the anti-Judy bug. The Judy bug, you know, got sent down and can be ingested and 
hibernated and turned into demons, like I suppose the Laura Orb, the gold seed, is like the opposite of that. Do we all have golden seeds within us? And when we die, that seed leaves our body? Or are, are those seeds that we're seeing in the return strictly tied to tulpas because they're not organically created. It could also tie back into the uh, cream corn, right? That could be like a, a symbol of the, the golden orb. Like there could be pain and suffering involved with the, the golden orbs as well. Because it doesn't mean like every time we see golden orbs being sent into people, they're either tulpas or it's Cooper. It's, it, you know, it's not the, it doesn't mean you're going to be really necessarily having a lot of good luck. Like it almost could be, a, you could say you're a curse or you're, you're, you're challenged, you're enlightened. But golden orb that the fireman created in part eight was in direct response to seeing Bob, the Bob bubble. So the insinuation is I'm going to go ahead and create this deterrent to this great evil. And it just happens to have Laura Palmer's homecoming picture within it. And it gets shot to earth. My question is, how is that manifest? Does it manifest as just kind of an ethereal being that uh, that maybe people dream about that allows them to combat evil? Is it actually wind up in the body of Sarah Palmer as some kind of immaculate conception or in Leland as some kind of seed? Or is it uh, uh, related to creating multiple Laura Palmers like we're seeing multiple Dale Coopers? Like we have a Carrie Page. People have speculated there are Laura Tulpas out there. Well, it seems to be the counter to the, the, the Judy egg. You know, they're going to lay some golden seeds uh, to try to counteract all the Judy eggs that are taken over the world. Oh, that's right? a good point. Could Sarah have swallowed the Judy egg and swallowed the orb at the same time? Because she had both in her? <laughs> and that's what created that's, Laura? Yeah. Well, it's, there's not really much duality within Sarah Palmer, but uh, Laura oh, Palmer is the... there's duality, Tom. Look at her. <laughs> seeds. She's, she could be good. She could be bad. She definitely what got two she... personalities in there, at least. Probably more. <laughs> what was that line in Ghostbusters? Or wasn't that the thing? Like, there's at least two... I want you inside me. I think there's a lot of guys inside you already or whatever. Yeah, right. There's a lot, of, a lot of entities in there already. Yeah. Um, well, no, but Laura Palmer is the really the essence of duality. But there's this orb out there that is somehow combating that. How is it combating it? Is it combating it because it just that's what we're seeing? That's how she was born? Or is this orb that we saw in part eight, is it what we're seeing in the opening credits of every show? It, it was designed to go to Twin Peaks and hover over the town and it it radiates light yeah because think of the show would be called be like called hell peaks it would be a really bad show though it shows <laughs> at the beginning the golden orb show gives you hope and the joy and the beauty in in this show as well the positivity i think that's what it does uh, symbolize you know i mean we haven't really i mean we see the little the little seeds those are different it's almost like the black lodge reverse engineered the technology they got from the golden orb the original orb sort of creating the seeds out of them that's using good. that same tech but uh I don't really we haven't seen like we saw the giant pass an orb to Cooper in season two, episode one. But what other times have we seen anything remotely like that occur in the entire run? So I think I we mean, missed Laura, the whole conga line scene. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, we can go into this. We're, here we are at the uh, uh, here's Dream State Vegas. The conga line of uh, Dougie and Cooper and the Mitchum brothers and Mandy Candy and Sandy bearing gifts. And and uh, what's his name? Sizemore. Tony Sinclair is watching and crawling under his desk because he's been tasked with having to murder uh, Cooper because uh, no one else, all these hitmen, these ace hitmen like Ike, Ike the Spike and uh, those two dudes outside of Rancho Rosa um, failed. So now it's up to him and he's cowering under his desk. So it's just a little, but it's just funny, this conga line scene to open up this particular show because this is happening, I think, right after the events of part 11 with the cherry pie 
yeah. and the champagne and the heartbreaking thing is they had a night out. They because I think Bushnell even says uh, you need to call your wife, Dougie. And so he's been out all night cavorting with uh, with the gang and whatnot. So it's an interesting start. I liked it because it really it starts the show off on a uh, kind of an upbeat high note. We really haven't had a lot of uh, uh, the the Dougie. We haven't had any Mister C since Part Nine. We're about to get him. Um, so and this storyline itself is coming to a conclusion. Mitch and Brothers are you know they got their money. Uh, the only thing uh, Cooper has to fear is uh, is this final hit by Chantal and Hutch who are in route. Yeah, you know, I think they could have trimmed this down a little bit. This first ten minutes, <laughs> well, you can probably say slow. that about any number of scenes. <laughs> but uh, there's like three minutes yeah. of Sizemore cowering under the desk. Like there's like literally like two minutes of that. So well, you, no offense to his acting styling, but a little much. No, he's good. But there's that line in part fifteen when Cooper sees or Mister C sees Jeffries, and um, uh, he said one of the first things he tells Jeffries is, uh, "Did you call me five days ago?" And uh, I mean, this is part 15. That scene was in part two. So like 13 parts equate five days. And like probably two of those days for Mr. C were spent in prison. So you see with with that particular scene, uh, you're watching a nine hour script being told in 18 hours. So there's a lot of not necessarily filler because I don't think Lynch does filler. I just think that the uh, extreme the detail. Yeah. David Lynch, he believes in letting his scenes breathe a lot. And, we like uh, and I mean a lot. Like they're breathing. <laughs> well, here we are. Sonny Jim's got his, uh, he's getting his uh, jungle gym. Naomi Watts is getting a new Beamer from the, the, uh, the boys because uh, Nucky just came through with a $30 million check. You got a Sonny Jim theory too. You want to talk about that? Yeah, you know, how do we not notice this or recognize this? When I was doing some research on the show, I came across some post. I think it was on Reddit. I'm not sure. But uh, um, Sonny Jim, the character Sonny Jim, I, I think I read somewhere that Lynch's mom, her nickname was Sonny. So I just thought it was just an endearment to, you know, call out a shout out to his mom. Because that statue that we see outside of Lucky 7, I think, is uh, supposed to be in honor of his dad. I think there's a similar pose that his dad had, like a photograph that Lynch had when he was a young man. But there's a character in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, named Sonny Jim, and it's the imaginary child of George and Martha, played by uh, Dick Burton and, uh, and Liz Taylor. And um, the idea of an imaginary child um, and this that we presuppose that this Vegas... Uh, world that we're seeing in The Return is this Cooper dreamscape or this Lodge dreamscape uh, manufactured for Cooper. Um, and Sonny Jim within this dream world and also being the you know, sired by a tulpa, uh, being this imaginary character is fascinating. And uh, uh, the idea of the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, this George and Martha character, the, these alcoholics, middle-aged couple, very combative, uh, Liz Taylor, the Martha is emasculating her husband constantly until he, he finally kind of turns the tables on her. Kind of, you can see like a little mirroring, mirroring with the Charlie and Audrey uh, scene because there's a point in the story in, uh, in their dialogue where uh, Charlie tells Audrey, well, do I have to end your story too? And basically what the, the character, the George character in Virginia Woolf tells the Liz Taylor character is that he ends their story, the, the story of their imaginary child. So it's not all like fit together. There's no Sonny Jim correlation with the Audrey and Charlie scenes, but there is some, I, I, maybe Frost is a big Edward Albee fan or loves the movie. I can't see this coming from Lynch, but there are some connections, potential connections. Yes, yeah, so an imaginary character in Twin Peaks named after an imaginary character in an Edward Albee play. 
Interesting. Yes, exactly. That's a good. I never thought of that. It's good. Well, here we are now. Uh, so, what is this place called? The uh, the Dutchman's? Are we? Uh, we're with Ray, the fucker, <laughs> the whole gang of bad guys. Mister C's going to show I think, up. I think it's the farm. The, screen. It the, the farm. Yeah, it's called the farm. Yeah, yeah. More surveillance. It. Yeah, it's like so many surveillance, like the glass box, and thinking of fire walk with me with Cooper's. Yeah, a lot of surveillance. Uh, the surveillance camera with the Jeffries coming, and here's Mister C on a big, like, huge screen uh, TV, like people watching other people uh, via you know technology, you know, a television or video monitors or something. Is ever since uh, maybe fire walk with me or even Lost Highway, thinking about the mystery man, like being in. Uh, uh, Fred Madison's house that Lynch has had this uh, surveillance motif that's popped up in in, in his films and uh, it's all over the return but this is the first time we're seeing Mr. C since part nine so this is four hours of the return our main antagonist has been MIA because his whole journey is basically he's on the road he's listening to whatever tunes in his car his uh, Silverado traveling westward to these coordinates, wherever it's going to be. And he'll have a pit stop every now and again. Here's a pit stop. It's an over-the-top arm wrestling scene. But that is one of the aspects of the return that was a little bit disappointing was uh, not enough of Mr. C tied into um, maybe other threads, uh, other story threads, because he's really kind of on his own uh, uh, track, so to speak. And he just pops up every now and again and, and Ray's you know, part of his uh, storyline. And I love Ray. George Griffith was great as a character. And they've got a great scene here in a little bit, but uh, um, I'm just glad to have him back because we need that that villainy. We need that menace. And we were unsure if Bob was even in Mr. C at this point. And so and Ray had just gotten the ring from the one-armed man in jail, right? And so does Mr. C know Ray has the <laughs> ring at this point? And how would he know? No, he doesn't. He, he got it from a guard. Um, but is, we assume yeah. it's the it was... <laughs> but don't you think he would have noticed a one-armed guard? Your ring, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Must have happened right you know, before this... that scene where they let him out. Remember the jail scene where the very end, uh, down the hallway, you see them both getting let out. He that's he, he even says that he got the ring right after the, he got out of his cell to meet Mr. C. But do you know who that character uh, uh, actor who's playing Muddy, who's I guess the number two character? Are you, he was in another Lynch film. Do you remember? Blood and Heart? Right. Like, blew his whole arm off. Or he has some crazy line. To some, some fucking yeah. fucked up. That's some fucked up shit. What does he do? I can't remember. He yeah. was one of the guys outside the Fat Trot trailer park. They were shooting a, a pornographic movie. Texas style. style. Yeah, he's a good actor. Yeah. That's he's also in Silicon Valley. He's been in some other movies. He's a working actor. He's still oh, he's been in a ton of things. Yeah. He's got a great face. A great, uh, great character actor face. So... Um, but, See, here at this uh, point, we were watching this when it first came out. We were wondering whether the Bob bubble was still inside of Coop. It looks like he's been debobbed at this point. It looks so powerful. But I guess we, that yeah, was but the big that we're about to find out during this. Uh, well, there's two things. If, when he's coming up the elevator, there's a little sign in the back. I think it says, like, no smoking this. But one of, them, one of the lines says, I think, no passengers, which is kind of interesting. It's like, well, maybe Mr. C is without his passenger, his dark passenger. No dark passengers. Um, yeah. There's no Bob. Yeah, but um, when, once I saw, and I'm, I, I mean, I'm still wrong. And during, if you listen to the old podcast, I'm wrong like 98% of the time. I like to think that I'm right, and uh, but I'm wrong a lot. You get a better, uh, come I, on, better odds of that, I think. A little better. 97. Maybe 92%. But when I saw this scene, I mean, there's no way he's going to kick ass the way that he kicked ass without some supernatural uh, uh, entity inside of him. So that, for me, was the huge tell that uh, Bob was still, because there's no way... You know, Mister C, that even the doppelganger. I don't know if if you're a doppelganger, do you still do you get some superhuman uh, uh, strength because oh, yeah. you're a doppel? Yeah, 
think so. <laughs> okay. But I think that was the test. Do you think that uh, Lynch was like, you know, wanting us to wonder whether the Bob Bubble was still inside of him? That, that we were going to find out by this arm wrestling match? If he rips his arm off? Then, I don't uh, know. There's Bob still in there? I, I don't... I don't I wish he had done so. like a good Bob scream, like when he's doing it, <laughs> like you know, doing the actual arm wrestling. That'd have been cool. Okay, so maybe if that was Leland a little bit, because he a little bit more emotional. Mister yeah. C, Cooper, he no emotion coming out of him. That's he's he's. It's almost like that line from the original series when Cooper is describing Wyndham Earl. Doesn't he describe his mind? It's like it's cold and it's brilliant and it's like a diamond. Uh, that's which was kind of funny because. Uh, I always thought that Wyndham Earl was just kind of silly and not very brilliant and probably yeah. not very cold. Uh, just but like uh, Catherine Trebell in Basic Instinct. She's evil. She's brilliant. <laughs> She's devious and diabolical, cold my friend. Cold as ice, my friend. Yeah, devious and diabolical mind. Well, here we go. Here um, comes the arm wrestling match. The setup, very similar to the convenience store from Firewalk With Me. You got Bob and across from the man from another place is tete-a-tete. And it's almost like this ceremony with this ring. Like they're trying to figure out the rules for infiltrating our world and possessing the living and harvesting Garmin Bozia and doling out the pain and suffering. Is that but a green for Micah table? They, they're arm wrestling gone? No, 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 but it's not, but it's, it's got this similar, cool like, you would see like Bob maybe having the sense memory of, well, back in, you know, whenever it was with the, the man from another place, he tried to give me the business with the ring and uh, telling me, you know, I couldn't do this. And I had to tell him I have the fury of my own momentum. And so that's what you know, he's doing. He Maybe Bob and the one arm man arm wrestled and Bob ripped off the one arm man's arm in the arm wrestling. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe the one arm man had a little bit too much of a Garmin Bozia. Too like, much you know, of Bob. And his tore that arm clean off. off his arm. Or they are clean off. Well, you say this kind of like they're in the same setup as the convenience store sitting here, right? Maybe they are the convenience store. Maybe like all this Mr. C journey, because we were wondering how it all ties into Cooper, uh, Dougie's Vegas journey. Maybe all this takes place within the lodge. Well, also, we're in a room with with dirty bearded men. Like, dirty bearded men. These are all woodsmen around them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're in the convenience store right now. You never know. Well, yeah, but it's not, but it's not the official convenience store, but that kind of. Well, it's We're like right. basically it's... like the convenience store could have its own, you know, reality. I mean, it could be the Black Lodge as well. We never figured out what the difference is between the two. Although well, you had a good talk... theory. You know, we talked about like the, you want to talk about the, you know. No, heaven, you do. You bring well, it up. no, the, you're talking about that the convenience store is right in the middle of the, uh, or that the, the waiting room in the Black Lodge, that's like purgatory. But then the convenience store is hell. And then the giant's uh, mansion is heaven. And so all there are little concentric realities that, that connect the, all the three. You know, and like Nido is like a few concentric circles away in between the Black Lodge and uh, the Giant's Palace in Heaven. And then there's other like evil entities and realities going on. Probably Laura's timeline is probably from the Lodge going towards Hell. And Cooper's is probably too, Dougie's as well. So I think about it as right. one like Dante's Inferno. But I like the idea of it being like a Heaven and Hell metaphor. It's yeah, kind of it is. just it seems like the, the Black Lodge is the waiting room where these souls wind up trapped. Or it's the kind of a, a way station uh, on their way to even or to either heaven or hell, or they remain there indefinitely. Um, so yeah, it is very interesting. And then if you think about the convenience store uh, being created, at least the the idea of what we know of the convenience store in the Return being created from the the atomic blast in 1945, and that being this this kind of hell on Earth, uh, not you know pitchfork devil but you know kind of this 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 metaphoric hell and the woodsmen 
as these minions, these dugpas, as we used to call them, um, summoning the extreme negative force through this rift in time and into the convenience store, and it's spewing the bob bubble and all these other eggs. But we know that the convenience store is, it's it's not tethered to reality. It seems that it can you know show up at pretty much any place. Um, it disappears. It's interdimensional. It show up. It's interdimensional. Thank you very much. And even when they're walking, the woodsman's leading Mr. C, and then I think when uh, Gerard is leading Cooper in part 17, down that hallway to the Dutchman eventually, is that Lynch superimposes the woods. Um, like, so it's almost like, even though that is that own space, there is another space occupying it. So I think all of those eggs, we saw that one egg in 19... 19- 56 uh, that wound up in the the young girl who we suppose it, we, we think is, is Sarah Palmer but um, that those eggs could have gone anywhere and they probably did that's that's why Lois Duffy the the blue rose case the initial blue rose case she probably the tulpa she probably had a, a Judy bug in her and there's probably been Judy eggs in Twin Peaks and all over the world and that was the moment that, that, that it happened. And it also correlates to all of the, the Air Force, the Blue Book, and the UFO sightings. I mean, that's more into the secret history. But all this shit went down post, like, 45, when the technology went rampant. But I think what Lynch and Frost are doing is they're taking that moment, the Trinity test, and going, like, that's the moment that that huge uh, expulsion of energy caused this rift in time to and space to allow these these interdimensional being, beings, kind of very Lovecraftian beings, to uh, populate our, our world. And I think that maybe at some point there was only the White Lodge and the Black Lodge as these portals, um, at least in our story. But after the atomic test, I think with the convenience store and the other portals, like the one that Freddie went to, even though I think that led to the fireman's domain, but the one in the zone and God knows how many other ones, I don't think those existed. Uh, prior to 1945. And I think that's what the convenience store and what Mr. C is trying to do is that these port either to overwhelm these 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 good portals or to overtake them and make them dark, kind of like a cancerous thing, and make the whole world a very dark, dark place. Yeah, so dude, it's almost like these uh, woodsmen and everybody, uh, they're, they were frozen in time by the nuclear blast and the rift that, that brought evil into them. So do you think that account that we just saw was like walking into the convenience store in 1947 and to get like some cookies <laughs> and then he's stuck in there and he's like, he's one of the entities? Because he looks like, a, he doesn't look like a regular guy here. He looks like a, like a fucking lodge entity from the convenience store. No, he's he's like the he's the accountant, right? He's the money yeah. man. He even asks Mr. C, right, do you need, do you need money? money? But doesn't he seem yeah, like he but, could be uh, like a Philip Gerard? Like he could be a Gerard type guy coming like popping in from the convenience store, helping him out? I, I completely agree. I think he's uh, he could very well be a confederate like with the Polish accountant, uh, a minion of, of, of the White Lodge. Maybe he's infiltrating uh, the farm uh, for the, uh, the side of good. And the one thing to think about Ray Ray is, we didn't know this until part 17, Ray is an, uh, an informant. With he is the an FBI. FBI agent. Yeah, he's an informant, Tom. He's a good guy. Yeah, his de plume is, uh, is Johnny Utah. Yeah, he's but, Johnny Utah. Um, but yeah, he's this, dying this, right this here, is, by the way. We're just watching his death scene. We're getting a lot of information about... <laughs> <laughs> he was dressed as a guard, but I'd never seen him before. He just explained that. Where'd you get that? A guard. Yeah, and, he's, and you can see Mr. C fears the ring. He doesn't want anything to do with the ring. And that's the one thing that... Lynch and Frost, well, mostly Lynch is playing with the mythology, I think, a little bit more because in the return, because a lot of the mythology that 
they're discussing and what we're seeing was born from Firewalk With Me, which Frost didn't have a lot to do with. So I think Frost is playing with that a lot. But the ring was the something that Lynch and, and Bob Engels created for Firewalk With Me. And it seemed like Bob was very afraid of the ring. He didn't want Laura wearing the ring because that meant that he couldn't possess her. And, uh, and and the one our man had it there that scene in the traffic uh, uh, at the at the traffic light and Mr. C doesn't want to be near the ring touch it he, he makes Ray put it on your hand your left arm your ring finger because he knows what he's going to do he's going to shoot him and he's going to condemn Ray to this purgatory he's not going to give him the potential of going to the convenience store hell or the fireman's mansion heaven he's going to condemn him to the purgatory of the Black Lodge because that's where he's going to go well, don't you think he did some good work for the White Lodge and the FBI? Or the, you know, he, the, he should be going somewhere better, right? He did his duty. I agree. He died and, uh, and died doing his duty. I, I agree. But this whole thing is that the Dutchman's being a part of the convenience store or not, Ray knowing. Like, how does Ray really know all this stuff? Because he says that. I know uh, who you are. Only, well, yeah. And also, does he, he knows really? who he is. I think he knows he's an FBI agent. He thinks he's Dale Cooper, FBI agent. Oh, but he doesn't he also, know that he's a fucking doppelganger, yeah, right. No, he doesn't know, but he saw the Bob Bubble in him. If he's begging for mercy, why doesn't, he, why doesn't he say, you're a fucking FBI agent, to all the, and all the woodsmen would freak out and start attacking him. <laughs> That's true. You, know? you should say, or maybe that Mr. C would go like, I may be an FBI agent. But you're a rat. You're a <laughs> he could like pull out, yeah, he could pull out like the like picture of Dale Cooper, like FBI, and show it to the gang. He could have like probably gotten some help there. But I guess you that goes like back Tammy to Tammy had. Yeah, it goes back to yeah, exactly the one that Tammy had. Maybe Tammy was that one the one that was working with him, undercover. <laughs> well, I was dead. Tom. Uh, He's dead. He shot him cold. Once he found out where Philip Jeffries is. Now, don't you think Mister C seemingly being omnipotent? Like, he would know where to find Philip Jeffries? Like, where is Philip Jeffries going to be? Is he going to be he traveling? He moves around. Well, but don't you think he's been at that location in the Dutchman probably for a while? Trapped? Yeah, but I think the I think the Dutchman moves around. I think it's I don't think it's stayed. I think it's always moving. It's kind of the, Yeah, but he knows the where to go to find it in part 15, right? It all has to do with the moon and the stars, Tom. <laughs> I have no idea. But so Mr. C is uh, checking out if uh, Saturn is, is in retrograde. Well, I would think that, yeah, things are moving around. The universe is moving. Things are shifting. I think uh, uh, Philip Jeffries is always in a – so just like the convenience store, it's moving around. That's his hell. He's trapped. Well, speaking place. of moving around, Philip Gerard is putting the ring on that table within the <laughs> Black right. Lodge. And that Very table – I like the way he moves his hand away. It's pretty funny. Yeah. It's very <laughs> ceremonial. If you notice in Firewalk, or excuse me, in the original series, the last episode, when Wyndham Earl gets his soul taken by by um, by Bob, you know, the fire shoots out the top of his head, and then Bob like seemingly takes his soul, and then he flings it, or he throws it, you he makes can't. a gesture with his yeah. arm behind him. But that table that we just saw is the, is the table that's right in the background. So yeah. that table is... Somehow, I mean, I don't have the, the, the brain capacity to go ahead and give you some of a scholarly uh, explanation. But the fact that it's very ritualistic that every time the ring falls into the Black Lodge, Philip Gerard picks up that ring and puts it on the table. And the same scene happened in Firewalk with me. Is I it mean, a good table I, or a bad table? Is it the devil's armoire? <laughs> I don't know. I just know it's ritualistic or ceremonial. It is ritualistic. And uh, I'd have to wrap my head. The whole thing, I could figure some of this stuff out if I actually did like the research and took the time but I'm a lazy guy I don't think you're that lazy you're not as lazy as the Fusco brothers we're here we are the Fuscos again hashtag too many Fuscos <laughs> no offense to the Fusco actors you say we saw too much of them. that's all I'm saying we got David Ketchner here he's, he's doing a little cameo it's good 
I'll give you a piece of good news, though. This is the final Fusco brother scene in The Return. I know. He's a missing FBI agent, and they <laughs> just throw it in the trash. Yeah, right. That's hilarious. That's That, that actually it. is good. Yeah. I really that, – that's a good payoff. It was. I did like that, actually. I did. And I like these guys. The actors are good, and I like their rapport and their chemistry. It's just – their role in the narrative, I think, uh, could have been minimized. But here's the thing. If the Vegas dreamscape, the Lodge dreamscape that we're seeing uh, play out in The Return, here's a scene that isn't through Cooper's perspective. It's related to Cooper. But we're here we're seeing, like, you know, Tom Sizemore, Anthony Sinclair, and he's on the prowl trying to get some poison from the cop. And we see the Fusco brothers talking to their mom about dinner. Where does that play into right. the dreamscape? Right. right. You would think that Dougie is creating this own reality or Cooper is becoming Dougie and, you know, living in this lodge dream that, like, the rest of the world would not exist unless he were in the scene. Like, do, are we supposed to care about these these characters, like Tom Sizemore? You know, it's like, I think also what it is, it's like he's rope-a-doping us. He's making us believe this is real. And then I think at the end, the payoff that we at least surmise is that it's not. But this time, we're thinking all this stuff's really true. And so he's showing us all this extra, you know, as a, as a, as a part of the suspense and mystery. I think Vegas is real. These characters are real. They're all real. Now, maybe the the idea that Sunny Jim and, and uh, Naomi Watts because of the Dougie Tulpa, but I think that this world exists. But what we're seeing is through the uh, manufactured uh, dreamscape of Cooper. So even though he's not on camera, it's part of the storyline. It's it's tied in. Well, it is because you know what he's doing. He's trying to poison Cooper right now. So he's this right. is a part of the story. Right. right? Right. And be, yeah, these people exist. And the only reason why Cooper is there and the only reason why these people are doing the things that they're doing is all tied to Cooper and his storyline. But the, Dougie, the, well, the only reason why this exists is because that's where the Tulpa Dougie existed. He lived in Vegas and that's where Cooper went. And that's that was the, the, the beginning of the dream cycle because... Cooper is still in the lodge, or we think Cooper is still in the lodge, but this reality exists. It's just through the prism of uh, his uh, dreamscape, his his dream world, manufactured by the lodge. So you think Diane and Naomi Watts are really half-sisters or sisters? It really was going on. All that stuff was really happening, and that maybe Cooper uh, and Diane went to Vegas and had a romantic getaway or something before all this, the hell went down. He remembers Sometimes maybe he went and missed with the Fusco brothers. He had to go do a little business with the Nevada Police Department. You know, is that all a part of like his seed subconscious? And that the lodge is like this entity can suck everything up and, re- and cre- create a fictional reality based on that, you know, real memory of real people. Well, that's a good point. I think the simple uh, answer to it is if we stick with this Vegas as a dream world. But the the fact that Vegas does exist, these characters. Uh, exist. We've had examples, especially with the, the Belushi character, the Mitchum brother, having the big dream uh, with the cherry pie dream that Cooper somehow infiltrated or affected their conscious, subconscious mind. And what we're seeing is with all the Cooper scenes that even though these people are in reality, it's almost kind of like a lucid dreamer thing. That I think that he's lucid dreaming within the lodge, but he doesn't know he is a lucid dreamer at this point. He won't know until part 17 at the sheriff's station. But what I'm thinking, the reason why we're seeing these Fusco brother scenes and the, the Anthony Sinclair scenes is just the reality of 
a narrative that has to be told that connects certain dots. Uh, like every, I mean, I don't think Lynch and Frost were concerned if they if they think Vegas is a dream or if that's what they wanted to go. That well, then if it's a dream, how can we have the Fusco brothers talking to their mom and doing this? It's like Cooper's not there. I mean, I don't think they're worried about that. And uh, so that that's what I think. I think there's it is a dreamscape. These characters do exist, but it's all from the point of view of Dale Cooper in the Black Lodge with the help of Mike. And that somehow maybe they're all a little bit better off by being uh, – because these characters, they, he's almost like a Buddha, right? He's doing good. He's making everybody happy. He's kind of making bad guys good guys. and So he's affecting them differently. Then they would, they would be a lot worse people in real life. Yeah, I think the dream is benign because the I'm taking Lynch for his word – from Firewalk with me that the good Dale is in the lodge and he can't leave because he told Chris Rodley in that book Lynch on Lynch that from that scene that the diary pages and uh, existed and that that diary page would be found when, and sure enough it did it got you know it was discovered and uh, in the sheriff station at the Hawk and Truman scene but the fact that the good Dale is in the lodge and he's the one having this dream within the lodge it makes sense that we're seeing the benign dream and not the nightmare because this is the Dale Cooper without any of the darkness. And uh, once he reintegrates with his shadow self, his darker quality, even though that he's not having a dream for part of part 18, it's a little bit darker. But then when he infiltrates Laura's dream in part 18, it's very, very dark. Well, here we are watching him have coffee with Tom Sizemore. And he's going to try to poison him. And they're outside <laughs> of the, the pie place where he got the pie uh, before meeting with the, the, the brothers, the Mitchell brothers. And uh, so I'm wondering, there's a Z in the title of the cafe, and isn't there a Z in the title of the, the Polish accountant? What is the uh, what does the Z thing mean? Is there a connection to the lodge or something? I mean, also the coffee cup from Tracy in part one with the, the glass box. The Z, it's this motif. I think, I think yeah. some people wanted to speculate that she might have been an agent of good in the White Lodge, and she was trying to get in there to get, you know, Tracy? intel. Tracy, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why she seduced uh, whatever his name was, Sam. And the Polish accountant, he had that Z, and, uh, and he, he knocked off Chantal and Hutch, which prevented them from knocking off Cooper. And here's the, the Simon's coffee and pot. They, so the, didn't the scene in part 11, like Cooper saw the one-armed man in the coffee shop, Simon's, yeah. to give him the cherry pot. Yeah. So did we really see him in there? Yeah, there was a shot, like a long shot. Yeah, he's like summoning Cooper. Like it super Is he like opposed. waving? Come over? I mean it like it is, like it sounds. When he's walking in to the pie shop, it's almost an exact match of Cooper in the Black Lodge walking after the one-armed man in part two summons him, like, come with me, we got to meet the evolution of the arm. He's walking. So you could like probably lay those two scenes on top of each other and they would like fit almost exactly. Dude, I would love to go to the pie shop in the lodge. If this is like him saying, that'd be great. Hot damn, that pie's good. Oh, wait, we got to talk about this real quick. This is the, the, the dandruff scene. Yeah, this is the constellation of dandruff on the back of Tom Sizemore, and it looks like that somehow it's awakening Dougie and remembering like his Nido journeys and flying through the, the the universe and all. It seems like he's waking up, and he's probably like, oh, here am I. Here's the giant. Moving like, Here's the lodge on the right. right. Kind of talking about the map we're talking about and everything, so... And it's making Tom Sizemore just uh, crumble. He's, he's, his attempts to poison can't do it. I never would have imagined just, okay, we're going to have dandruff like on the back of it. And that. But if you notice in, when he was cowering under his desk, Anthony Sinclair, and earlier in the show, uh, maybe, the, maybe it was the other shot when he was looking for the cop, he had dandruff on his shoulder. So like Lynch is so meticulous. That's why people 
who don't think the FBI pin means anything, in my opinion. Oh, it means something. It means something. Lynch is not going to go ahead. He's so he's so meticulous with Diane's nail polish, the dandruff, the, the slightest details. Well, then if he does it on purpose, why does he insult everybody who asks? And Mark Frost like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Get a life. He's like William Shatner said that <laughs> the track fan, Trekkies. Uh, so he could at least say like, well, that's a good question, buddy. Buster, follow the trail. You know, something. He doesn't give you any... Uh, Nothing. Yeah, he yeah. won't elaborate stop, on anything. Stop looking. Yeah. Oh, I, I have to. I, I've got to mention this thing because it's kind of tying into what we're discussing is that before that scene when Sinclair is waiting for Cooper to show up and Cooper walks right into the door, smack, his head smacks into the door, yeah. and he's trying to open the door. And once he realizes he's looking at the door, he tries to open the door with the invisible invisible doorknob. Invisible doorknob. And there's no doorknob, right? Is it a sliding thing? There's no doorknob. It's like a little right? pull. It's a door pull. So some guy winds up opening the door for him. But yeah. it, he's waking up, Tom. It, he's waking up, but he's also the sense memory. He's like, this is the dream state. This is a dream state. Bust out the invisible doorknob. Yeah. Let's get out of here. So that was another connection. I mean, there's just a million little connections. But I think that's the genius of it. I mean, I think that our theory, it's not to be like who's right and who's wrong. It's it's all about love of Twin Peaks and Lynch and Frost and trying to put the puzzle pieces together and it's our interpretation of it. But someone who wants to say that it's not a dream or it's a reality, I mean that's also very valid because there is no definitive answer and that's that's why we're here doing this thing, talking about it because we love it so much. It's, it's a choose your adventure. Your adventure, yeah. yeah. Just like the uh, yeah the Black Mirror episode out, choose your adventure. Except <laughs> didn't they get sued by the way? Didn't the choose your own adventure? Yeah, they get sued horribly. <laughs> But come on, come on! It's ridiculous. They didn't say choose your own adventure, right? They, it's like a, they can't just like take a. Anyway, that's a different story. Yeah. Here we are with Shelly, talking to uh, what's her name? Pie Tom. I'm thinking of Pie. Becky. I'm forgetting the names of these characters. It's been so long. It's like it's all starting to fade away. It's sad, Becky. It's been. When's the last time you watched just an episode? Now, like the five weeks ago, or whatever it was. <laughs> the last time we did yeah. one of these, I know. Uh, well, this is her last scene. This is the last scene for Amanda Seyfried uh, as Becky. In, in the okay. show. She's a rap. And because we see, don't we see Steven and uh, Gersten in the woods in part 14? And there's yeah. a little mystery as to whether or not she's alive, that he might have done some harm to her. Yeah, is that, has that violent scene happened where he was menacing her? Like, that's what he happened. So why do we think she's dead? No, that's the next episode, part oh. 14. They're in the well, woods. So this is not a rap then. This is the part 13. Next episode. What's well, a rap for her? She doesn't appear again. Oh, oh, oh. She's yeah. referenced by. Gersten and Steven in the woods, like she she did it. She did something or I see, yeah, because we already saw them him menacing her and so you're going, Okay, she's being abused horribly, and then we see him freaking out, like acting like some but something, you know, like he killed her. I get it. Yeah, when he's talking about rhinoceroses or whatever, you know, in the woods. So you don't know if something bad happened to her and then you hear a gunshot but you don't see him. Like, did he kill himself? I think he probably did, right? I mean he fucking killed himself. Right? I think he did. I I mean my gut would be that he he yeah. killed himself, but that's open to interpretation. But this whole thing of the timelines, you know, the fuzzy timeline, we've talked about that, right? Because Cooper goes back and saves Laura in 1989. So the, the, the reverberation of that is possibly being felt. And we're going to get a, a, a real big snapshot of that here a little bit with Sarah Palmer watching that boxing match with the loop going on. But one thing to consider, the one thing that I think is happening off camera um, that maybe Lynch and Frost wanted to happen on camera, but they weren't able to do so, is that I think Major Briggs is hovering over like almost everything. I mean, a lot of these scenes in The Return and like making notes and uh, giving clues and uh, whether 
he's uh, this ethereal be- being, this this uh, disembodied head, or it's the Garland that we all knew and loved in 1989, just hiding behind a bush. I think that <laughs> Cosmic his presence, bush. yeah, his presence um, still exists. He exists in one form or, or, or another, and and the 16 crime scenes that uh, his fingerprints were found that. I think wittingly, unwittingly, he's caused events to change as well. And the shifting timeline might not be solely tied to Cooper saying, saving Laura. It could be also Briggs. And, and then in another thing with Jeffries, what he has been doing. So all of these scenes, the whole thing with like the return and some people, you know, they're, they're upset about certain characters disappearing and not meeting expectations and why is Twin Peaks so dark and it doesn't feel like this way or why is this happening? It could be because of all of these different... Different timelines, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, whatever show you want it to be, it's happening somewhere on a different timeline. Just We're not seeing it. So just settle down, everybody. They just chose yeah. to show us this version of it, yes. Don't yeah. you think it's also possible that like they found Major Briggs's prints at 16 crime scenes? Don't you think his, this, his, just his body without the head could be running around like Reanimator and like uh, causing havoc? <laughs> and he's the Black Lodge, is the body, leaving the crime scenes and strangling women and God, God knows what. And the White, the, the White Lodge, the head, has actually moved on. So it's, they're two separate entities probably. You probably have a dueling, yeah. The head in one timeline, yeah, and then... The head could be chasing the body. That could be a whole story of season four. Like <laughs> reanimate. Yeah. I would love that classic Michael Myers Halloween scene of the this the the headless body of, of Major Briggs, like in the morgue or in the fog. I think there's a similar scene in Getting the up. fog. It's on a girt. It's in the morgue, yeah, and it just up. gets up it's without a head. head. That'd be great. Investigating things yeah. naked, doing living fingerprints. <laughs> That'd be scary. <laughs> hey, Big Ed, he's back. Big Ed's back, babe. Is this the first time we've seen Big Ed? Yeah, it's the first time he shows up. See, I Big forget Ed. everything's blurring together. Thirteen Bobby episodes in. Okay, what do you? What did Bobby and what did they eat for for dinner here? I think Bobby I had chicken parm. Yeah, and it looked like Big Ed had like maybe chicken fried steak. I don't know. Looked like chicken yeah. fried steak. I was gonna say spaghetti. Norma gets up yeah. and get, but the doesn't Bobby right. say here? Uh, you know, we found something in my dad. Very interesting. Oh yeah, today or yeah. yesterday. Oh yeah, the timeline's all weird. You're right. Oh, well, I don't think that in itself is part of the fuzzy timeline. I think that is an editing choice because didn't we read that article? Like they had the big board up and it's like, where to put the Twin Peaks scenes in? Oh yeah. This is a scene. Yeah. They didn't know what to do yeah. with it. Cause it's like about Norma right. and the, the restaurant and Big Ed. And yeah. This could have been anywhere. So they just threw it in here late. Yeah. I think this could have been, yeah. Part nine or 10. That, that, caused, some, that caused some confusion though, Tom. That was a lot of confusion. Yeah. Well, when you have a, a narrative that is like already it. dealing with alternate timelines and time jumping and portals and yeah, and erasing yeah erasing Laura's past so we can change the timeline this could be definitely the first scene was them with Becky right with the the bug girl outside the guns and fighting now we're seeing this it's almost, it could be two different timelines it could be it could be more than two timelines I think two having two timelines I think is the bare minimum I mean it could be three four five I mean it could go well one of the theories we've had was that you know obviously that Laura you know we're starting to see the glitch going on and then like when you see the the, the diner the double R diner kind of flip in episode seven or whatever that is that we're starting to see evidence of the, the retcon happen, you know, so right, that would be the two right. timelines I'm talking about. There could be a million other ones, but we're still sticking with that, right? Of course. Yeah. I'm still yeah. thinking of, yeah, still sticking with that. But one thing we see the big end glitch here in a minute, right at the very end, is this the end? Is this the episode where you see the glitch? Yeah, this is the, it's, yeah. I love that ending of him just eating the soup. Yeah, me too. Watching the cards. You love that ending when it first came out. by himself. That Murphy, forget all the music endings. That's the way they should have done every episode. (laughs) That's what they say. That's what Tom says, folks, when we're off the air. He gets a little bit more angry about things like that. But uh, you're right. I could have enjoyed that. 
But uh, I like the music, but I love those endings. Like, it just I love those endings. Yeah, eighteen innings like that. That'd have been cool. Like all focusing on different characters. You can have your musical acts just cut them down, and you can you know put them wherever, or you can do I don't know what. You can put them on like a special feature of the DVD. Do you think what he did was he was like, how the hell are we gonna fill eighteen hours? And he's like, okay, we'll do ten minutes at the end of all music, and then like maybe they really realize he's actually got a lot of story to tell, but they're already committed, so just save him time. I think he knew that he was going to do that. He was going to end the shows at the Roadhouse. I think he knew that it wasn't all going to be musical acts, but I think that was a way for him to pad the length as well. And he loves music. I think he likes showcasing certain artists. And I think a lot of those songs tie into, thematically tie into some of the storylines. Like if you read into the lyrics, um, you could, uh, they, they, they could make sense with certain themes in the show or certain characters. So I thought that was pre-planned on Lynch's part. Would have been cool if Lynch was like actually in the audience, like smoking with glasses on, and like you know, like grooving to the beats of every time like, you see him <laughs> up there once in a while. What could be the, the like uh, just cut away like one of the uh, extras in the crowd? A little cameo, yeah, yeah. Lynch is in there, yeah. Spot the Lynch. Which episode is he in? He's in the audience. Just they say like, what's his name? Was in Inherent Vice. Oh, Thomas Pinchot. Yeah, they say he's in there. He makes a cameo. I don't know where he is. Well, you see that movie 164 times. Where is he? I can't figure it out. That's what I'm saying. We talk about the Norma scene. This is like another scene with Charlie and Audrey about we've talked about how that could be a euphemism or standing for David Lynch and Sherilyn Finn, the drama that went on behind the scenes. Well, this scene with Norma and her, her beau slash business partner could also be um, a euphemism or a subtext of what was going on with Lynch and Showtime or Money Men of, of, of involved with uh, the show talking about Lynch because here's Norma wanting to stay true to her brand and and not uh, uh, ch- cheapen ingredients for her pies and and he wants the franchise and just just tweak the image a little bit just like you know sex it up spice it up or whatever cut some corners here and there you know it's just it's all about like the pizzazz and the bottom line and you would you would think that the suits would have that thing. Like, we got this Twin Peaks brand. Just give us the Cooper, the Audrey, or just do this. And Lynch is, he's not having any, any of it. And maybe he was using some of those experiences behind the scenes with Norma because Norma rarely leaves her booth here. I think she lives in the diner now. She lives in the diner. She does. And don't you think having one of the booths like as her office is hurting, hurting business a little bit during rush hour? Well, we were, we've been there. There's only like 14 booths. So yeah, you're losing some... some chances there right. Yeah, you're right. right maybe she's doing so well though they're doing the to go stuff you know so uh she's making some dough there's a gold shovel tom we're seeing a gold shovel in the nadine's uh, shop what was the shop called run silent run drapes run silent run drapes is that right I run think? silent run deep <laughs> run she silent is. run drapes god she's a genius she's a genius tom and jacoby's gonna show up the whole thing about the gold motif with the shovels and the orbs and, but the shoveling yourself out, out of the shit that really that's the first scene that we got in the return is, is Jacoby receiving the shovels before anything. That's what we got. We didn't know what the hell was in that box, but that really is a theme of the show with a lot of characters and specifically Cooper shoveling himself out of the shit, but he's digging himself deeper. Tom, he's digging himself fucking deep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He's not taking uh, Amp's advice, Jacoby's advice, yeah. and he's winding deeper and deeper in the shit. But I like this little interlude with Jacoby and Nadine. These are two characters, I, I wouldn't say the A-listers of the original show, but they were part of the main cast. And to have this, they didn't have a... I mean, Jacoby had some scenes uh, with his uh, rants. Yeah. Uh, but Nadine... In four scenes, they're exactly the same. 
<laughs> they're interchangeable. You can switch them around and no one would know the difference. Right. But this is, it's almost like a, a little kind of a wooing moment here. Jacoby yeah, talking about the potato that yeah. she was uh, looking for on the ground during a big storm. And she's like, oh, like there's like a flirt. And then next time we see Nadine, she's got his gold shovel and she's ready to give big head her freedom and you think like hey you know she says i'm, I'm like not, i've been a selfish bitch all these years like you love norma go but maybe there's some ulterior motive she wanted him to go so she could go get herself some amp she did i think these two are almost like kind of in the, one of the more enlightened characters they were able to like progressively like age in a good way they have their own little like projects going on they're kind of hipsters progressives like ceo startups you know, they're, uh, I think they kind of like, they, they swallowed a gold orb seed or something at some point. I think these two characters, they're good. Well, I could see these two characters, if they wind up together and they wind up in bed, it would be very similar to what we saw in Flirting with Disaster with Lily Tomlin and Alan Alda, like with the crystals. <laughs> the tantric, you know, yeah. like with the tantric t- crystals that they would be Would doing Lonnie be there? there? Who'd play Lonnie? <laughs> <laughs> they would adopt Sunny Jim, like a new Sunny Jim, like a Lonnie, an imaginary child. Yeah, or Lonnie. Would you like to have dinner can? with, uh, yeah, with this couple? I think they'd be a good. Conversation. Yeah, I think I would. I would like to hang out with Jacoby. Jacoby's yeah, Jacoby is like a mouthpiece for for Frost. Uh, he's into a bunch of stuff, so uh, I think it would be an interesting dinner conversation. But hey, the Sarah Palmer scene here—the first shot. Here we are, and he finally goes down, hanging on the ropes, dude. The first shot was the exterior of the Palmer house, and guess what? What lights out, baby? Every time we see the Palmer house, I think there's two shots before the ending of the exterior of the Palmer house. But then you look at it now and the lights are on. Well, no, no, no. The lights were on with Alice Tremont and it was almost like every single light in that house was on. Like there's two people living there, the couple, unless they had kids, but probably unlikely that the, the Tremont and maybe her, ima- her husband or her imaginary husband, but every light in that house. Her 12 imaginary husband with big beards, Tom. <laughs> Dirty bearded husbands. Maybe when Laura screamed, some people suggest that uh, that was a, a powerful scream that, that, that killed the electricity and, and killed the spirit of Judy within that house or whatever. But um, maybe, it, it, and I think that it was Laura's dream that that was the memory of, of Laura Palmer coming over her and that scream uh, was her waking up. And so whatever her dream of Tremont and the Palmer house there, the lights turn off that reality, uh, that aspect of her dream disappears and she winds up in a waking reality where Sarah Palmer is in that house watching and, and he goes down again with the lights out. That's why the electricity is off. That Sarah is now in that house and maybe with Judy bug inside, or maybe it's a different time. So you think that this is like the, this is like the epilogue to the entire show instead of the whisper, like she's stuck in the lodge doing this forever. Who? Sarah? Is that what you're saying? Sarah. Yeah. We're stuck in this house. The lights going out. Because the lights are on here. We see lights. There's lights all over the place. Well, no, no, no. There's lights inside. But if you look at the exterior of the Palmer house, it's it's dark. I mean, she doesn't have the electricity. If we want to connote electricity with evil um, uh, with some of the characters and some aspects of the show, then you would think that there would be super-duper electricity going on in this house. Well, we saw it in Part 18. But Sarah seems to be living in the darkness. Um, she's got her TV on. She's got one lamp on, and that's it. You would think that she'd need the juice. She wanted the juice for the, the woodsmen that come in through the portals, the electricity, all kinds of evil bugs going, jumpy man. It's all through the television. There's lots of electricity coming through that television, dude. That's like an 89-incher. It's coming through the TV. 
And maybe she's stuck in that loop because of what happened in 1989 with Cooper going back in time and saving Laura and that she's not just trying to destroy. Yeah, she's stuck in the loop, I think. This is a part of like her, her hell. She's stuck in that convenience store loop that has engulfed the entire Palmer household. Judy, she's still there. She's been stuck in this hell, and it's all because of that Laura orb that the firemen sent, this being, this ethereal being that, you know, is somehow represented within her daughter that was saved, and now she's in hell. And she she can't differentiate the love for her daughter and the reality of her own hell. And so she's smashing the one thing that is the symbol of her of, of her hell. See, I imagine that that's Judy. Judy not wanting the retcon to happen, that she's smashing the, uh, the picture that she's inhabiting Sarah at that point. Like, I don't think Judy's inhabiting Sarah here when she's getting looped. She's in a Judy trap, I think, at this point. And somehow Sarah or Judy can come in and out of these bodies. And then at the end, when she's smashing the, the picture, I think that's because we heard the, rah, the screaming going on. That's like Judy showing up, <laughs> Judy coming into her, her. And then I think she was the one doing that myself. Just my, just my two cents. Well, here we are with uh, Audrey, Charlie. This is it. Yeah, watch Virginia Woolf and watch this. And you'll see, we'll see some connections, I think. Very salient, Tom. Yeah, and I think, didn't Sherilyn Fenn play Liz Taylor in like a tele telemovie? And- yeah, she looks like Liz Taylor, yeah. She's got some Liz Taylorisms. And Charlie looks exactly like Richard Burton. Thought <laughs> you. This handsome devil. Well, he's got the glasses no, on in the suit. Okay, one thing I want to mention is before we're kind of wrapping up and yeah. we're going to get a James song here in a little bit. So, uh, well, I've got extensive notes on on James and uh, that. So I actually have a, a whole treatise on uh, his character and what he means to not only the return, but to uh, other uh, serials and other Lynch projects as well. I think I think Nervous About Meeting Jay tonight is James Hurley from the original series. But I also think the Jay and the Judy and the James, there's a connection there too. Yes, I've been waiting all series for that, friend. That's good, because I wouldn't be nervous about meeting James at all. I would be maybe nervous about meeting, meeting Judy. I was kidding, by the way. He has no relevance to Oh, Judy. okay. I was like, what? I was waiting for that. I was like, okay, this is going to be awesome, Tom. You totally had me hooked. I bet all of our, uh, the listeners did, too. <laughs> oh, here we go. Lynch didn't give us any nostalgia with what we wanted, uh, but the one bit that he, of nostalgia that he did give the fans was the nostalgia that they didn't want. A lot of people hated that scene in the original series. I loved that scene. I loved. I loved it. I loved it. I still love it. Yeah. And I love the song. How could you not like it? Because the Bob comes crawling over the couch. That's awesome, dude. You had, you had to have the, that set up to have the Bob, I think. And I thought it was a perfect. I totally yeah, agree perfect. with you. I totally agree. And the fact that we got the ghostly doubles of Donna and Maddie. Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. It's kind of creepy. It's stuck in the past. But, but isn't the roadhouse a little weird in season three? A little convenient. Like some scenes like, is this really happening? Well, dude, the reverse with Audrey. The I know. Me, I think it is also part of like a convenience store hell. It's also a part of it. Well, it's also got that right? purple hue. Like it seems like the stage curtains or the lighting is uh, purple. And we associate purple with uh, NATO and maybe the firemen's don't, even though that's in black and white, but the sea outside of his castle is purple. And then we saw the, the firemen as the giant in the original series showed up in the roadhouse a couple of times on that stage, on that stage. So maybe there's so James is good. Then Tom James is a good guy. He's crusading for good. He's friends with the glove kid. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's out there trying to do he's a moron, but he's trying to do some good stuff. Lynch obviously likes him. Lynch is giving him kind of a, a big tip here. Tip of the cap to James. Lynch, I think, had to be convinced. Yeah, to the fans that hate him. I think he had to be convinced to uh, go with James Marshall. 
uh, in the original series because he he, was, he wanted like a James Dean type, and uh, I think James Marshall's hair color that was more like James Lean. <laughs> James I Lean. think James Marshall Lean has the Dean. lighter hair, and Lynch wanted black. He wanted dark. So he had the, he had a mold James into his version of. Of, of of James Dean that he wanted to evoke, but he was not very James Dean. I guess there's a little bit of East and e- East of Eden James Dean in uh, in James Hurley, or am I thinking Rebel Without a Cause, where he's freaking out with his dad? You think a Rebel? I think a Rebel. Yeah. I think yeah, with Jim Backus. Yeah, those scenes. He did this real singing voice. Well, it's got some trouble to it, right? Some uh, it's post. Yeah. I think it's, been, it's the voice uh, of an angel, yeah. Tom. <laughs> All right. Well, how do, what's your wrap up thoughts, Tom? Okay, so we discussed this before, but I don't. I don't think we discussed it on a podcast. We discussed it right before the show. But um, when Hawk was outside of uh, Glastonbury Grove in part two, uh, those sycamores were very tall because he's looking up and he sees the curtains. But when Cooper comes out of the lodge in part 18 and sees Diane, those sycamores are tiny, tinier. They're more like the sycamores we saw at the original series, like 1989. So did Cooper come out of the lodge in part 18 into the real world. We think that's the only time that he's really out of the lodge in the series and in the car with Diane in the subsequent scene. But did he come out in 1989? I think you, I think you've nailed it right there. The sycamore trees are back to being saplings again. So it does seem like that he probably was maybe only gone like an hour or maybe a couple days. And as soon as Harry left and he had a big beard and he was tired, <laughs> and he said, I'm going to give up, give up the, the ghost. That's probably when Cooper showed back up. I think you nailed something. I'm not sure what that means, but I because I, he's only remember we talked about really he's only really Cooper in that moment. Like so, in '89 coming back before they go into the time portal or the on the highway again, that's when it seems like he's really finally together again for that short five minute time period in '89. If we can differentiate or distinguish what we saw in the bulk of the return of Cooper in the lodge and then his journey to Vegas and then up to the point where we're talking about as a self-contained mystery that gets solved or it has some kind of ending. And that ending is Cooper going back in time and saving Laura, which changes a timeline, one timeline. I still think Laura was murdered and the scene that we got in Firewalk With Me will always exist, but uh, they're they're on, say, their own track, so to speak. But if that happened, so... Cooper came to Twin Peaks. We get that piece of information in Mark Frost's book, and we can kind of think that would happen anyway. So he comes to Twin Peaks, but none of the shit comes you know, comes down with him investigating Laura's murder. But he still winds up in the lodge. But winding up in the lodge, he doesn't go through the 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 machinations with uh, Wyndham Earl and all the stuff that we saw at the end of the original series because that those plot threads didn't exist with this altered timeline. So. With the alter timeline, the Cooper that we see in part 18 after Laura is saved, he gets up like he is the future, is the past, just like in part two, walking to see the evolution of the arm. He doesn't say, do you remember your doppelganger? Because there is no doppelganger at that point. That timeline didn't exist. It is only, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? So even though Cooper is aged 25 years, uh, time is nebulous in the lodge, that aspect, that story arc is either been done before or on its own timeline itself and it's almost like Cooper was barely in the lodge in this version so when he comes out he comes out in 1989 when he's only really been there probably you know an hour two hours 12 hours what have you Um, because this is a separate reality or timeline per se that's the only way that I could kind of uh, wrap my head around him coming out 
1989. It's, it's got to be separate from the events of what we're seeing. We want to put it together chronologically um, with what we've, we, what we've watched. But I think if you compartmentalize it and just focus in on a different timeline, Cooper in there for a very short while because he's not dealing with the stuff that, he's, that, that happened in the original series, it's, it's, it's a different story altogether. And, and that's why he's out in 1989. So why isn't Diane 25 years younger? <laughs> I have no answer for you. I don't know. She looks kind of youthful. Maybe that's how she always looked. Maybe that's how she looked in 1989. We don't know. I mean, oh, no, I see what you're saying. We saw her in the sheriff's station and whatnot. Yeah, why doesn't she look? Yeah. I, if we're back in 89 again. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, it's something it's to. I like that. I like that. I think the saplings are a dead giveaway right there that he is back in 89 there. Yeah, and it kind of plays and in. That's the only time he's really himself. Yeah, and Lynch being so particular about details. I, I mean, they had to shoot that exterior with bigger uh, sycamores, and they had to shoot it with uh, shorter ones. So there's a reason why he did it. And then Cooper and and uh, and uh, and Diane, they get into an older car, and they when they cross over, even I think they're in kind of more of a hotel that would be maybe 80s, 90s. And it's only after the ritualistic sex magic scene whatever's going on there between Diane and Cooper, like after she's gone and he leaves the room that I think that he shows up 25 years later. I think he, that whole thing was about penetrating Laura's dream and her reality, like Cooper's reality in Vegas is in Odessa and it's in a current timeline. So when he goes out, uh, he is in the present day world, dream world of, of uh, Carrie Page slash Laura Palmer. Yeah, don't you think like Carrie Truman should have at least set up like a camera, like out by the, <laughs> the sycamore trees, and just been able to watch it on a live cam? Yeah. So Cooper just showed back up like an hour later, probably he just missed. He fucked it up again. That's a great point. Why didn't they do yeah. that? Right? They could have had yeah, just a couple of cameras in the woods come out every so often, live change cam. battery, live cam. Just yeah, they do it when like baby owls are being born. The eggs. Let's do a live cam on the eggs. They're going to be bored eventually. Let's they do it do live. It sycamore. Let's do it live. All right. Well, on that note. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you in a month, not five weeks, four weeks. Pull out the stop plugs, drain all the waste. Who needs it anyway? Fill all the big holes, leave no trace. No sign of yesterday. Wash all the dishes and clean up my plates. No sign of yesterday. I stare at the photographs of your dark face. No sign of yesterday. Out in was such a, a lovely place It's where we used to play Inside, outside you can feel and taste No sign of yesterday And I can hear you calling Ships are falling, this old car keeps stalling.
answers and dig out the dead. Then you can go to bed. Cause night is the stealer and time is the test. No sign of yesterday. It's a symbol for, you know, we saw the mother spew out all the eggs, the bob eggs and the evil going down. And this was kind of like a counteract. It was the Joan of Arc uh, attempt to go try to fix that. You know, that's really all we could take from it, I guess. For certain. I mean, other than that, what is it? Yeah. That that was good. That's good. We can wrap it up. It's good. Yes. All right. right. Goodbye. All right.